0: Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries, the series that looks at aviation accidents and how these have actually improved safety. I'm your pilot and host Desmond Latham. This is episode 15 and it's all about unusual accidents including one that most likely was caused by a crocodile. But let's start with what's called the first ever jetliner crash in 1953. This was an incident involving a de Havilland DH-106 Comet registration Charlie Foxtrot Charlie Uniform November operated by Canadian Pacific Airlines, and it happened at Karachi Maupur RAF Station in Pakistan. The plane was a scant two months old when it crashed on takeoff, carrying 11 people, five crew, six passengers. The Comet was named Empress of Hawaii and was being delivered to Canadian Pacific Airlines. The operator planned to use the Comet to start a service between Sydney in Australia and Honolulu in Hawaii. So, on April 28, 1953, It was being flown to Sydney after the flight crew had completed Comet jet conversion training in the UK. Its next phase of this long haul was supposed to be a stop between Karachi and Singapore. None of the pilots on board had experienced a nighttime takeoff in a jet or even night sim flying. The pilots in command had decided that he would go ahead with his flight anyway, and in those days the standard operation procedure allowed for this One of the safety improvements is, today, it would be inconceivable that the airline would permit pilots to do takeoff with passengers without extensive training. That's just one way in which aviation safety has improved. These days, this sort of thing would never happen, but that's why this series concentrates on how we as aviators and operators have learned from previous mistakes. That doesn't help those who perish, but it's so important to take note of exactly what goes wrong And to institute changes to operations, ensuring it doesn't happen again. So, by April 28th, the flight crew had completed their Comet jet conversion training in the United Kingdom, but no night training. They were still pretty inexperienced in operating the Comet when they departed for the ferry flight to Australia. So, everything appeared normal during the taxi and lineup in Pakistan. During takeoff, while accelerating to the rotate speed of 85 knots, the pilot raised the nose wheel but then failed to lower it slightly. This was one of the foibles of the comet. We know about the other foibles, which was catastrophic failure of its fuselage at altitude because it had rectangular instead of rounded window arches. I discussed that in a previous podcast. The Havilland Comet takeoff procedure was strange. It required the pilot to allow the nose wheel off the runway, then to lower it just skimming the surface, which meant the wings built up lift as the plane accelerated. Not an ideal plane to fly in any circumstance, but particularly finicky at night or on bumpy runways. So the pilot continued pulling back on the controls, and the plane continued thundering down the runway, but now the wing was pointed upwards, increasing the drag, so it could not achieve V1 speed. Nearing the end of the runway, the pilot suddenly brought the nose down again, but by now had run out of tar, and a wheel in the starboard undercarriage struck a culvert of a drainage ditch, the comet swerved and plunged into a dry canal at a speed of close to 140 miles per hour, then straight into a 40-foot embankment on the far side of the runway. All aboard were killed. With that, Charlie Foxtrot, Charlie Uniform November, became the first passenger jetliner involved in a fatal accident in the world. Crash investigators determined that the accident was caused by the fact that the nose of the aircraft was lifted too high during the takeoff run, resulting in a partially stalled condition and, and excessive drag. Investigators believe the pilot appears to have realized that the nose was excessively high as he saw the end of the runway coming towards him, and he took corrective action in the last seconds, but too late. Cause, pilot error. Training methods were updated following that accident. Conversion training was amended, improving safety, and that was at least until the terrible incidents involving comets and cracked windows, which I outlined in a previous podcast. Another example of pilot error that has led to thousands of pages of legal documents changing hands was an accident on the 27th of August 2006 involving a CRJ-100ER jet operating as Delta Connection Commie Flight 5191 scheduled to fly between Lexington in Kentucky and Atlanta in Georgia. The big issue here was that two runways are side by side but they are not parallel and one is much shorter than the other. Runway 22 and Runway 26, so that means one faces 220 degrees which is southwest and the other 260 degrees which is west-southwest. This had confused pilots before and was about to confuse two more unfortunately. The signage on the airport was also not satisfactory. Runway 22 and 26 are very close if you're not paying attention, perhaps too close for safety which is one of the arguments used by lawyers after the crash. Much has been written about this accident, which left only one person alive of the 50 on board, the first officer, Jim Palenke. So the Bombardier Canada Regional Jet 100ER crashed while attempting to take off from Bluegrass Airport in Fayette County, Kentucky, four miles west of Lexington's CBD. It was shortly after six on that fateful August morning in 2006. According to the cockpit voice recorder, First Officer Palenki was the pilot flying the plane at the time of the accident. He survived, but he's injured so badly that he has no memory of the crash itself. He is now wheelchair-bound and grappling with the terrible effects of that day. The captain was 35-year-old Jeffrey Clay, who had 4,710 flight hours, including 3,082 hours on the CRJ-100. Prior to his employment by KOME, First Officer Palenki worked for Gulfstream International as a captain and actually had more hours than Clay with a total flight time of 6,564. This included 940 hours as a captain and 3,564 hours on the CRJ-100, which is more than his senior on-board Captain Clay. So just before 6 in the morning, their pre-flight checks were complete. Runway 22 is a 7,003 foot runway which was the main strip used by most airline traffic at Lexington because the other runway 26 is far shorter. So on that fateful day, Captain Clay was taxing the Gulf Stream and he turned into runway 26 after confirming verbally they were on runway 22, which of course they weren't. The first officer and ATC failed to spot the error. Captain Clay was controlling the taxi process, but he had somehow turned into the unlit secondary runway, which was 3,500 feet, literally half the length of runway 22, and actually far too short for the CRJ-100, carrying a full load of passengers. According to the cockpit voice recorder, Clay then turned the controls over to 1st Officer Palenki for takeoff. All set. Control are coming, 121, ready to go what compounded the situation was that the air traffic controller was not required to maintain visual contact with the aircraft after clearing it for takeoff so the atc turned to perform administrative duties and did not see the aircraft taxi to the wrong runway All yours, Had he been forced by law to continue watching, he would have seen the plane turn too early and onto the wrong runway. That is something which happened before, at the same airport, as you'll hear. Based upon the estimated takeoff weight of 22,265 kilograms, the plane would have needed to reach a speed of 138 knots, with a ground roll of 3,744 feet, looking at the density at the time. Merely to achieve the speeds required for rotation, with more runway needed to achieve liftoff, That was at least 40 meters further than there was tar on runway 22. They were never going to make it. As the plane hit a speed approaching 100 knots on the ground roll, Palenki remarked, "That is weird. No lights," referring to the lack of lighting on runway 22. "That is weird. With no lights. Yeah." It was still an hour before daybreak and dark. Although they knew runway 22 had lights, they still did not realize their mistake. The flight data recorder gave no indication either pilot trying to abort the takeoff as the aircraft accelerated to 137 knots. Clay can be heard calling rotate, but at that precise moment, the aircraft had run out of London. We want rotate. Whoa! It hit a low earth wall along a ditch at the end of the runway and was thrown into the air for a moment then clipped an airport perimeter fence with its landing gear where the fuselage and flight deck separated from the tail. What was left of the aircraft then hit the ground about a 1,000 feet from the end of the runway. 49 of the 50 people on board died, most of them instantly in the initial impact. The passenger manifest showed most were U.S. citizens from the Lexington area, ranging in age from 16 to 72, and they included a young couple who had been married the previous day and were traveling to California for their honeymoon. First Officer Palenque was still alive, although suffered serious injuries, including multiple broken bones, a collapsed lung, and severe bleeding. Airport police officers were first on the scene and managed to pull Palenki out of the wreckage and thus saved his life. He underwent surgery, including an amputation of his left leg, but in subsequent questioning, he could not remember anything because he'd suffered brain damage. Palenki was confined to a wheelchair, eventually in 2012 filing a lawsuit against the airport and the company that designed the runway and taxi lights. He was not alone in the suing business. The estates and families of 21 of the 47 passengers filed lawsuits against the airline. Meanwhile, the Federal Aviation Administration discovered the tower staffing levels at Blue Grass Airport violated internal policy. There was supposed to be two controllers during the overnight shift one in the tower working clearance, ground, and tower frequencies, and the other either in the tower or remotely at Indianapolis Center working TRACON, or the local radar facility. At the time of the accident, the single controller in the tower was performing both tower and radar duties, which contributed to the crash. Following the accident in August 2006, the FAA announced that Lexington, as well as other airports with similar traffic levels, i.e. pretty busy, would be staffed with two controllers in the tower around the clock, effective immediately. Better late than never, for passengers and crew continuing to fly at these smaller airports. Then the airline Comair discovered during the investigation that its pilots had been using an airport map that was out of date and did not reflect the construction work taking place, which had caused some of the confusion. The pilots had listened to a recorded tam about airport procedural changes, but the incorrect recording had been made, which further confused the pilots. While the NTSB concluded this did not contribute directly to the accident, it was another example of a lack of attention to detail. So, the FAA issued a number of changes linked to this crash, which has improved safety. First, they issued a safety notice that ordered pilots to positively confirm their position before crossing the hold short line onto the takeoff runway and again when initiating takeoff. Secondly, The authority advised the pilot training should include specific guidance on runway lighting requirements for takeoff at night. And then in April 2007, the NTSB made four other recommendations themselves, three measures to avoid fatigue affecting the performance of ATCs and one to prevent controllers from carrying out non-essential administrative tasks while aircraft are taxiing under their control. Families of 45 of the 47 passengers sued Comey for negligence while the other two settled with the airline separately. Eventually, all families settled except for one case known as the Woodward case, formerly known as Hebert v. Comey, which was set for a punitive damages jury in 2010. Later, the decision to allow a jury trial was reversed with the judge ruling that the company couldn't be punished for what he called the reprehensible conduct. Of its pilot, well, now during a public meeting on July twenty-six, two thousand and seven, the NTSB announced the probable cause of the accident was the flight crew member's failure to use available clues and aids to identify the plane's location on the ground while taxiing, and then failing to cross-check the correct runway, contributing to this accident. Were the flight crew's non-pertinent conversations during taxi, which meant they lost situational awareness. Captain Clay's wife strongly disputes laying primary blame on the pilots, stating that other factors contributed, including an understaffed control tower and an inaccurate runway map. She's totally correct. But we were all taught as pilots that whatever happens, you're in charge. The pilot is in command. And the pilot and the first officer, and apparently someone sitting in a jump seat, had a long conversation as the plane was about to line up on runway 2-6. This failure to identify the correct runway at Bluegrass Airport was not a first, by the way. Back in 1993, for example, a commercial jet at Bluegrass was cleared for takeoff on runway 2-2, but mistakenly took runway 2-6 instead. Tower personnel there noticed the mistake and cancelled the aircraft's takeoff clearance, just as the crew also realized their error. Then, in January 2007, a Learjet was cleared to take off at Bluegrass Airport on runway 22, but mistakenly also turned onto runway 26. Takeoff clearance was cancelled by the local controller prior to the start of the takeoff roll. Again, the ATC was wide awake, unlike the crash involving Comair Flight 5191. So, some good news at the end of all of this runway 26 at Bluegrass Airport was closed on March 2009, and the new, longer 4,000 foot runway seven opened on August 4th in 2010. The big change there is the new runway has been moved away from 2.2, so there's very little chance of confusion as it's almost perpendicular to runway 2.2.0. The use of incorrect runways has happened more often than you think. For example, in October 2000, the crew of Singapore Airlines Flight 006 mistakenly used a closed runway for departure from Chiang Kai-shek International Airport, Taipei. The Boeing 747-400 collided with construction equipment during the takeoff roll, killing 83 of the 179 passengers and crew on board. Well, finally one of the more bizarre accidents, which took place in 2010 at Bandundu in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which looks like involved an escaped crocodile. The aircraft was a 1991 built Let L-14 Turbo, registration 9, Quebec, Charlie Charlie November. So on the 25th of August, 2010, the small commercial jet crashed on approach to Bandundu Airport in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC, killing all but one of the 21 people on board. The aircraft had been operated as a round-robin domestic flight from Kinshasa, uh, the capital, and then along a milk run stopping at Kiri, Bokoro, Semendwa, and finally Bandundu. So at one o'clock local time, while on final approach to Bandundu Airport, the aircraft crashed into a house just a kilometer short of the runway. As with the Kentucky flight, a single person survived out of the 21 on board. He was a passenger, and he had a very strange tale to tell. And if he hadn't explained, perhaps authorities would never have guessed what happened. There was no post-impact fire, a circumstance that led to initial speculation that the aircraft may have suffered fuel exhaustion. The Congolese Ministry of Transport opened an investigation into the accident which found that fuel was not the cause. The only survivor of the crash explained later to investigators that a crocodile smuggled in a duffel bag by one of the passengers had escaped shortly before landing. Panicking the passengers and the flight attendant who rushed towards the cockpit followed by the passengers, this resulted in a shift in the aircraft's center of gravity led to an irrecoverable loss of control. It spun into the ground. The crocodile reportedly survived the crash but was killed by a blow from a machete shortly afterwards. So, we know that the moment arm or the mass and balance of an airplane is drilled into pilots, and all flight plans include a clear printout of the plane's mass and balance, which must be kept and signed and added to the other documents both in the plane and a copy left with the company. The shift of the moment arm caused by the passengers rushing to one side and forward on the plane caused the accident apparently. The black box, however, was never handed over to international investigators by the DRC authorities, and there have been questions about the operational readiness of File and its owner, Belgian Danny Filmotte. There are often animals transported on aircraft. There's some pretty stiff rules about this, and I'll return to how animals on aircraft can go badly wrong in future podcasts. That's it for now. Next episode we'll probe the mystery of missing airliners, focusing on flight MH370 of Malaysia. Until then, aviate, navigate, communicate safely and virus-free. Goodbye.